0: Now, if you would, I'd like you to uh, meet me in Acts chapter 8, where we're going to look at the last uh, 16 verses of this chapter today. We're going to see the gospel go to a Gentile for the first time. What's a Gentile? A person that isn't a Jew. You're in a room full of them. Gentiles, that is. Oh, I'm so glad the gospel got to our part of the world And today, as we look at this incident, we're going to make three passes through our text. It's a very straightforward narrative, actually. Uh, It's another very important day in the early church. The gospel has already been launched in Jerusalem. It has spread to the surrounding area of Judea. Thousands have believed in Jerusalem and Judea. And then God raised up this uh, man, Stephen. He was one of the first seven deacons chosen in Acts chapter 6, and And uh, he began to preach, and the gospel spread even more. And he was murdered for his faith He gave that glorious testimony that we have in Acts chapter 7. And uh, immediately upon his death, a major round of persecution led by the man named Saul from Tarsus that began to drive Christians out of Jerusalem. And in the first 24 verses of this chapter, chapter 8, we saw one of Stephen's cohorts Philip the deacon take the gospel to Samaria. Now that was a massive breakthrough because of the long history of antipathy and hatred and disdain between Jews and Samaritans and they had no contact with each other. But Philip went there, preached the gospel and many were saved. And we also learned some lessons from a a pseudo-believer named Simon. We dealt with that last time. The next huge step now is for the gospel to go to what Jesus described in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 as the remotest part of the earth. Now, we have a a foretaste today of that in our passage. Philip doesn't go to the remotest parts of the earth, but after he preached the gospel in Samaria, God used him to reach a man from Ethiopia. Now, as I said, we're going to make three passes through the chapter. Your outline is based upon the sequence of events. And then I want us to draw what to learn from Philip and what to learn from the Ethiopian. The sequence of events is this number one, God arranged the meeting. Number two, God prepared the Ethiopian. Three, God saved the Ethiopian. And four, God added another miracle. Now, first, God arranged this meeting. Philip started in Jerusalem. He wasn't called to be an evangelist. He wasn't called to be a missionary. Uh, he, was, he was asked, Would you please help make sure that the Greek-speaking widows don't get overlooked in the daily mitos, uh, widow's food ministry in Jerusalem? God had raised up Stephen before him and now Philip. And when they began to be scattered, Philip chose to go to the city of Samaria, about 45 miles north from Jerusalem. And we read about that in 8 1 through 24. Many in Samaria had believed. Uh, Peter and John had come from Jerusalem to witness what happened and to pray for the new Samaritan believers to receive the Holy Spirit. And they obviously helped Philip with ministering to the people there. And and to be honest, we're not told how long that took we're not told how many weeks or months it may have been. The Lord willing, next week when we get to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, I'll, I'll try to give you a little bit of what we know about the timeline of these things, and you'll you'll get a sense of, of, of how quickly history was moving. But I don't want you to get the idea. Acts chapter 1 is one day. Chapter 2 is the next day. Chapter 3 is the next day. Um, we had have, we have a few years go by here. So we're not told how many... Weeks or months are included in those 24 verses, but we come to verse 25. It says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now we know who he's talking about. The antecedent of the word they is at least Philip, Peter, and John. There likely were more with them, but we know that they were the main actors. And as I said, we, we don't know how long it took, but they spent however much time it took to get to many villages of the Samaritans. And we're not told exactly what their strategy was, but we know when we start to see the systematic evangelization, uh, Paul always went to the Jews first, and where did he go? To the synagogue. What's the big day for the synagogue? It's the Sabbath. They went to many villages, probably many weeks involved in them doing this. And they took the gospel every place that they went. And now comes a spectacular new development. Now they're heading back to Jerusalem, stopping off village by village. And verse 26, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up, and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Now, he'd gone to Samaria, the city of Samaria, about 45 miles north of Jerusalem, and they're heading back south now, and the angel tells Philip, leave the group, head on down south, go right past Jerusalem and take a right. That's what I want you to do. I want you to head toward Gaza. Gaza had been... Uh, one of the five chief Philistine cities. You know, the Philistines in the Old Testament, constant enemies of, uh, of Israel. Now you frequently hear of the Gaza Strip, thin strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea, and that's pretty much where the enemies of Israel launch their missiles most often uh, toward, uh, toward Israel. It's Palestinian territory now. That uh, city, Gaza, had been destroyed in the first century B.C., and a new city, was built closer to the coast. And there were two roads that went down there. There was still the road to Egypt that ran through the ruins of old Gaza. There was another road that went along the sea coast. Now, if you and I were taking a trip through there and we said, uh, okay, uh, shall we take the road that goes along the sea?" with the cool ocean breezes and the beautiful v- views or should we take the road that goes through the desert especially on a 100 degree day like today let's go out where all those light colored rocks are and, 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 and walk for 10 hours or so well, you wouldn't choose the desert road unless you're in a hurry it was a little shorter it was a little faster but um, that was not the one uh, God didn't tell them to take the scenic one the sovereign hand of God said take the desert road Verses 27 and 28. So, he got up and went. Apparently left Peter and John, moved on. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. You remember how much God told Philip, an example, why to go there? <laughs> he didn't. Now, in those days, uh, Ethiopia referred to a, a large kingdom south of Egypt. Uh, truthfully, we don't know its exact boundaries in the first century. Uh, now you can find Ethiopia on a map, defined country, one of the many countries of Africa, but much bigger then. Um, a eunuch was an emasculated man who was groomed as such to be a servant to a high-ranking government official. Now, if that sounds like an awful practice, it was. It was designed to safeguard a king's harem and or to limit, shall we say, mischief by government servants. And this particular servant had risen through the ranks. He was a very important guy. He was basically the secretary of the treasury. He was in charge of of all of her treasure, that is, the, the queen mother. The word Candace, we know of it as a name, a woman's name, but Candace is not believed in this instance to be a specific person. Candace was the title that was given to whoever was in the role of queen mother of the land of Ethiopia. It's like Pharaoh isn't the name of a guy. Pharaoh is the name of an office. The, the belief among the Ethiopians was that the king was too holy to do any kind of work. He was just a figurehead and one to be revered. It was, the, it was his wife. It was the queen mother who was the head of state. So he was a servant to the queen mother. Now, this Ethiopian had come to Jerusalem to worship. That means, we don't know why, But somehow, he had eschewed all of the paganism of his native land. He had learned about the true God, Yahweh. Uh, Probably, we're not told, but most likely, that had happened through Jews who had been scattered even beyond Egypt to Ethiopia. Remember, once the uh, captivity came, Jews were scattered around and not all of them came back. Matter of fact, a small percentage came back to uh, Jerusalem. So, He wanted to come to Jerusalem. He had. And as a eunuch, uh, we don't know if he knew this before he got there, but he would have been prohibited from entering the actual temple. He would have been prohibited as well from becoming a full proselyte to Judaism. That's a regulation specified in Deuteronomy 23. Nevertheless, God put it in his heart to go to Jerusalem. He'd been there. Now, he couldn't get into the temple, but he could get to the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. Who do we know that's been hanging out around there? He may have seen some things. We don't know. Now, he's on his way home. He's sitting in his chariot and reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, not just everyone could get a hold of a scroll of a part of the Bible. That tells us this guy had... Had significant means, uh, certainly, because of his position. He was in in essence a, a close servant to royalty who had gone to Jerusalem, but he had no idea what God had in store for him on this trip. But verse 29, then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Therefore, God arranged this meeting. Secondly, we find out that God prepared the Ethiopian. Acts chapter 8, verses 30 and 31. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now notice it's interesting. It said Philip heard him Reading. That means he was reading out loud. That might have just been his custom. I, I've been told some people do that whenever they read from uh, a, a scroll. Uh, maybe somebody else was there. Certainly, a man of his stature would have had uh, others who were part of the entourage, chariot drivers, and uh, whatever else he may have had uh, in, among those who traveled with him. But Philip's question was a welcome question. Do you understand? what you're reading. Now look at verses 32 and 33. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. So, Philip happens to go past Jerusalem, happens to get on this road, happens to choose the right road, happens to see this entourage going on (laughs) with this guy in the chariot, and he's reading out loud from Isaiah. I think God arranged that, all right? Not only is he reading Isaiah, he's reading from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, about the servant of the Lord, who was the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. It's one of the most specific Old Testament passages about Jesus. So verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Now there's a background to that question, and it tells us this guy had done some research Maybe he had been asking about this while he was in Jerusalem. There was disagreement among Jewish rabbis about whether this sheep that was led to slaughter was Israel. Some of them said that. They spiritualized it to be the whole nation. Or maybe they said Isaiah was referring to himself, like a self-prophecy of his demise. Or... It looked forward to the Messiah. Obvious which answer is correct. But his question was legitimate and it was honest. Is Isaiah talking about himself or or somebody else? This was God beginning to open the door for the gospel to go for the first time in the book of Acts to a Gentile. Now other Gentiles had been saved during the ministry of Jesus, but this is a big deal in Acts. And even though no one had yet targeted the Gentiles by design, God brought a mission field to Philip. He's still in Israel territory. And he meets this guy from Ethiopia. I I know people who, who do missions in the United States by going to American college campuses and focusing on foreign students. You know, you can go spend a few years learning a language and try to share the gospel somewhere or wait till somebody comes here learns your language introduce them to Christ and send them back home and you've spread the fire Uh, that's a good thing to do and that's kind of what was going on here although the guy wasn't going to college but we know God arranged the meeting God prepared the Ethiopian and now he saved the Ethiopian look at verse 35 you can't say it more simply than this then Philip Open his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, that tells you more than just what those words say. Philip obviously was ready for this, his heart was full of God's word. It sounds a lot like Jesus after his resurrection. Remember, he encountered those two uh, questioning disciples on the road to Emmaus. And remember in Luke 24, 27, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Philip could say, yes, I know who that's talking about. It's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Let me tell you about him. And obviously he did because look at verse 36. And they went along the road, or as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now that also tells you more than just those words. That tells you that when Philip preached Jesus to him, he included the call to repentance and to, baptize, to baptism, just like Peter had said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. The message was the same to this Ethiopian as it had been to the Samaritans, as it had been to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea. Now, I think it's quite reasonable to surmise that while he was in Jerusalem to worship, this Ethiopian guy, quite possibly, I would even say probably, heard testimonies about people turning to Christ. He may well have been, since he couldn't go inside the temple, maybe outside the temple, maybe below those te- steps leading up to the temple. Maybe he saw among all the mikvahs there, the ceremonial washing pools. Maybe he saw people being baptized. But we know for sure he knew that when he came to Christ, that's what he wanted to do, was to be baptized and to declare his faith. We're going to see the same thing when the gospel goes specifically to a group of Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Now, that brings us to Acts chapter 8, verse 37, which says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, notice the brackets around that verse, as I printed it for you from the New American Standard. That's because... The reason it's in brackets is because that verse is not in the oldest manuscripts of the book of Acts. There is no manuscript evidence for it until the 7th century, the 600s. Uh, It wasn't included in Jerome's translation into Latin called the Vulgate in the 4th century, so it, it wasn't in the original. Now, Is there any error in that verse? No, only that it shouldn't be there. Um, But it's like, it as a matter of fact, is is like many records that we do have of what people said or what people were asked to repeat at the time of baptism. Uh, It does show up in some manuscripts after a few centuries as a marginal note and then it eventually got included into the more conflated manuscripts. If you meet one of our brothers and sisters in Christ who come from the tradition of believing that the King James Version is the only one that should be used, they will say, see, there's an example. You and your modern translations, you take things out of the Bible. And uh, there's a certain element of truth there, but it's backward. Uh, it, the point is, no, it's not that anybody decided to take something out of the Bible. You're assuming the King James in English from the 16th century is the best translation, or 17th century is the definitive translation. The fact is, no, uh, something was added to the original manuscripts that came to be included in some of the later ones, and that's where the King James came from. And that part's the side trip is for free. Even though the words may not have been what Philip said, and maybe they were, what happened was clear. And it shows the commitment and the character of both Philip and the Ethiopian. So look at verse 38. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. That also tells you some things beyond what the exact words say it tells you Philip was not presbyterian Philip was not lutheran Philip was not catholic this was not a sprinkling they went down into the water and they came up from the water the word baptized means to immerse he was baptized by immersion now i wouldn't go so far as to say that proves Philip was a baptist But he'd be a lot more happy in a Baptist church than he would somewhere else. Believers, baptism by immersion. Coming soon to a church gathering near you the last weekend in August. See Scott Basolo if you need more information. Now, God arranged this meeting. God prepared the Ethiopian. God saved the Ethiopian. God then added another miracle. This chapter is amazing. It begins with vicious persecution that breaks out on the day Stephen is murdered. God used the persecution to spread out the people who took the glorious gospel of Christ with them. Philip took it to heart. He chose to go to Samaria where he preached the gospel. God did miracles there. People were delivered from demons there. Many who were paralyzed and crippled were healed. There was that pseudo-believer Simon. We learned an important lesson from him uh, and against the backdrop of the many true conversions. And then after Peter and John came from Jerusalem, there were more miracles accompanying the arrival of the Holy Spirit to the point Simon was jealous and he wanted to buy that power for himself. We've learned all of that. And then after the Ethiopian is baptized, and now bear in mind, God sent an angel to tell Philip to skip ahead And go south from Jerusalem. He spoke to him and told him, go up and join the the chariot. God is clearly at work here. Well, God adds another miracle. Again, showing his hand upon Philip to spread the gospel yet further. So look at our last two verses, 39 and 40. When they came up out of the water. Again, that's immersion. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, every miracle of God has a purpose. All of them validate the message and the messengers that God Sins. But I have to say, maybe there's more to this that I'm not quite seeing, but I have to say that of all the miracles recorded in the New Testament, this one strikes me as almost serendipitous. The Ethiopian already believed the message, he already believed Philip, he already put his faith in Christ, he's already baptized. Maybe God was just saying to Philip, you know, I know I made you hurry from way up there in Samaria down to this uh, crummy desert road here. Here's a first class ticket to your next stop. Um, Whatever it is, Philip, they come up out of the water. By the way, I'd like to add that sometime to one of our baptisms. I'd love to pull somebody up out of the water and then find myself in, I don't know, McCall, uh, Bali, something like that. He finds himself in Azotus. That's the the first century name of an Old Testament Philistine city, another Philistine city called Ashdod. Go look that up, A-S-H-D-O-D. Interesting things happened there. Philip continues going along and preaching his way. Now he's in thoroughly Gentile territory. Remember, Philip is a Greek-speaking Jew got a unique slot that he fulfills here and it says he went city by city and preached his way to Caesarea Caesarea is uh, another city along the Mediterranean coast Um, it'll be significant in several more places in the book of Acts it is now one of the most well preserved sites that you can visit in Israel those who were there with me last month will remember Caesarea Maritima amazing place um, many believe, and I have no reason to disagree with them, that Caesarea may have been philip 's hometown. He was a greek speaking jew he 'd been in Jerusalem for Pentecost, he was chosen as one of those one of those first deacons, and he may have just preached his way back to his hometown we don 't know for sure, but it is told that 's where he went, so hence probably his hometown now that 's the sequence of events. We have a few minutes left, and I want us to skim back over the passage two more times I want to say like the King James says in 830 understandest thou what thou readest I mean we know the words we know what happened but how do we connect this historical narrative to us hate to break the news to you we aren't apostles we don't have miraculous power this isn't the first century. The barriers have long since been knocked down to take the gospel to Samaritans and Gentiles. God does not speak audibly these days. God does not send angels to deliver select personal instructions. Our situation is far different But there's a lot that we can learn by observing the two main characters in our passage. I'm assuming you want to be a better and better instrument of God for spreading the gospel. I know I do. So let's learn from Philip six things we can do. Number one, be faithful in ministry. Remember how this started? So when they'd solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritan. At least Peter, John, and Philip, maybe others, they solemnly testified. That means that they faithfully bore witness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They spoke the word of the Lord. That means they they explained the Old Testament scriptures. Like Philip explained Isaiah, like Stephen had explained the number of passages, like Peter had explained the number of passages, and surely they also passed along the Apostles' Doctrine, which they studied all the time in Jerusalem. Well, those are things you and I can do. Let's just be faithful in ministry. Where God takes you, that's the very best place for you to share the gospel, whatever day you are there with whomever you encounter. Number two, be responsive to God. Okay, I get it. You're not going to have an angel of the Lord come and tell you to leave behind your traveling party and head to the desert road toward his own town. But when that happened to Philip, what does it say simply? So he got up and went. No delay His attitude was, God has given me an opportunity, I'll seize it. That's something we can do. May not be as divine revelation via an angel, but we, we can be responsive to the Lord. Number three, be willing and eager. Not only did Philip go, but the wording gives you a sense of his eagerness and energy as he did it. Verse 30, Philip ran up, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? I mean, when he, God hadn't told him, as far as we know, why he sent him down that road. And then he sees this big deal going on. He says, Okay, I have a pretty good idea why God sent me here. He runs up and gets closer, and here's a guy reading out loud from Isaiah. He ran up, asked him, Do you understand? It was his joy. It was his desire to speak on behalf of Christ. That's something we can do. We can learn that from Philip. Number four, be prepared with Scripture. Remember back when we were looking at Stephen's astounding speech, his best last words ever, as I called it in chapter 7, I urged us all to be relentless in increasing our understanding of God's Word so that we can do likewise? Well, Stephen wasn't the only one of the first deacons to do that. We saw this from from Philip. He opened his mouth, and beginning from this Scripture, he prepared Jesus to him. This was out of the blue for him. But he knew the Scriptures well enough to start there and preach Christ from there. Now, if you aren't comfortable yet with doing something like that, I want to emphasize that word, yet. You only know what you know, but you're not stuck with knowing only what you know. This is the perfect day to begin learning, say, one tidbit at a time. Maybe one memory verse at a time. And if you were to add one gem to your spiritual treasure per week... A year from now, that would give you 52 things that you could years use to share the gospel by a year from now. Say, well, hey, Jim, I'm almost as old as you. My mind is fossilizing. I can't do that every week. Okay, if you miss every other week or it takes you two weeks to memorize a verse of Scripture, then a year from now, you'll have 26 verses. To In other words, be relentless and preparing your heart to know the Scriptures? It's important to know the whole big story. It's important to know the big big picture. It's important to know all the different books of the Bible, but learn things that you can use as a starting point. If you think God might be putting you into the presence of somebody that's really struggling, really hurting, maybe been maligned, gossiped about, Crushed by a physical problem of some kind or the, or the illness or death of a loved one, maybe you 'll want to start by memorizing first Peter chapter five: casting all your care upon him because he cares for you there 's an open door you got a lot of care. I know someplace you can go with that. Take it to Jesus because he cares for you. What do you mean jesus i don 't believe in Jesus. Well, let me tell you about. Jesus, You ever heard of Isaiah 53? If that's one of the gems that you've memorized. That's something you and I can do. Be prepared with Scripture. Number five, be thorough. We read that. Remember after he preached Christ to him, he says, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? The observation here is simply that Philip's presentation of the gospel was more than just Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. he was buried he rose again the third day according to the scriptures do you want to believe that or not I got to go no he he preached Christ he explained it to him he helped him understand what he was reading and he called the eunuch to commit to Christ and he showed him that following Christ includes it changes your life and you want it to show you want to be baptized he, he was thorough that's something that we can do Know somebody who doesn't yet believe in Christ? Well, you could help them. And know somebody who's just believed in Christ? Well, you can invite them to be baptized next month. See, Scott Basolo. We can handle that. Number six about Philip. Be relentless. You realize that, as I said, he got started by... Well, will you help with serving the widows? Sure, I'll do that. A few months later, here he is in Samaria. God's doing miracles. He's preaching. He's preaching. Understand, that wasn't a one-off. Nor was his encounter with the Ethiopian. He found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And if he he happened to be going um, uh, synagogue by synagogue, that's week after week after week on his way to get there. He kept preaching the gospel wherever he went. That's something you and I can do. So this passage isn't just here to tell you about a witness encounter that Philip had on a hot road on the way to um, on the way to uh, Gaza, but this is here for us. Now, look for what we can learn from this Ethiopian. We see things in him that are characteristics we too can emulate, and. We see in him things that we should look for in other people. You know, if, if you have an opportunity to talk to somebody about Christ and you, and you maybe off, offer a gospel tract and they slap it out of your hand, call you a name, stomp on it, and spit on it, you may not want to spend the afternoon talking about spiritual things with that person. But when you start seeing a, a, a response, when you start seeing a glimmer of interest, oh boy, that's what you want to see. So learn from the Ethiopian, four things to look for, and look for them in your own heart, but look for them in people that you have a chance to share to. Uh, share with. Acts 8:27. He had come to Jerusalem to worship." All right, this is not telling you you have to go to Jerusalem to worship. But it shows the example of somebody making worship. A very high priority. This guy was willing to travel across half a continent. Surely, it's not unreasonable to ask somebody to maybe come to church with you. And if you begin to see someone with that kind of a a desire to worship, you realize God is at work in that person's heart. Because what does Romans 3 say? There is none righteous, not even one. So how many need the gospel? Everybody. There is none who seeks after God. So if you have somebody even willing to ask a question about God, assume that is the Spirit at work in that person's life. This is a chance for you to plant a seed. This is a chance for you to maybe even um, be used by God to harvest a soul. This guy went to Jerusalem He didn't have a car. He didn't have a train. He didn't have an airplane. It was a caravan on a really hot, dusty road in the Middle East. Well, that's something you and I can do. We can seek true worship. I mean, here at Heritage Bible Church, we have the audacity to say, we would like you to set aside three hours on Sunday morning for for worship and fellowship and encouragement. And that's a whopping 1.9% of your of the hours in your week. Set that example and somebody may ask, well, how come you never mow your lawn on Sunday morning? I don't know if they'd ask that or not. Well, I have, a, I have a much more important commitment. We can observe that and we can set that pattern. Number two, he was searching Scripture. Verse 28, returning and sitting in his chariot reading the prophet Isaiah. In whatever, in addition to whatever the public worship was that that guy got involved with in Jerusalem, he desired to to search the Scriptures for himself. If you hear somebody mention a Bible verse, um, maybe even mention a Bible verse completely out of uh, of context, well, then you know that you've got an open door there. He was uh, willing to open the Scriptures. He was willing to look for what God had for him in that particular time, in that particular place. So that's something else that we can do. We can be searching Scripture. We can be responding when we have the opportunity. I said it was such a rare thing for this guy to have a scroll of Isaiah. We have Bibles galore. You know somebody who doesn't have a Bible? Stop by our front door, take one, and give it away. What better thing could you possibly do? Help people search the Scriptures. Number three, this guy was humble and teachable. Remember we read about what he said he desired to learn? Well, how can I understand this unless somebody guides me? Well, be willing to guide somebody. Um, As Jesus put it in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's Matthew 5, 6. And the implication is they and they alone will be satisfied. So you hear somebody mention something about the Bible, and you say, well, I, I don't know if I want to start that. I'm not sure I can handle that. Or if you're, if, oh, One of the wonderful things is if you hear somebody say that they don't believe the Bible because of the contradictions in it, oh, man, the door just flung open. Walk through it. The right thing to do in that situation is not to say, well, yeah, there's some hard things in the Bible. So, oh, okay. Um, Which contradiction are you talking about? You know, I'm curious, as you've been studying the Bible, where do you see a contradiction? I don't think there are any. And then they bring up one that you've never heard of. That means not only do you get to witness that day, you get to say to them something like, I don't have the answer to that question right now, but I'd like to get the answer to the question. So I'll buy the coffee next week. Let's come and talk about that. Bring your Bible. And then you, they answer, you know, they, they, they show you another contradiction. You say, you know, I don't have the answer to that. But, you know, if I get the answer to that question, will you give your life to Jesus Christ? Is that what's in your way? You see, we can do that. We can be humble and teachable, and we can look for people who are humble and teachable. And number four, look how eager this guy was to obey. Look, Water! What prevents me from being baptized? When he heard of Christ, he believed. When he heard that the way to declare your faith is to be baptized, he wanted to do it immediately. That's something you and I can do. And we can model for people. I understand from the Word what God wants me to do. I'm going to go do it. And we can certainly be encouraging each other to do these kinds of things, like we see in the Ethiopian, like we see... In Philip. So I want to ask you Is there anything that God has convicted you to do and you're resisting it? Now, He's not going to send you an angel, not even going to send you a postcard. He won't speak to you audibly. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness in the knowledge of His Son, which is in the Scriptures. He's given you his Holy Spirit to help you understand and apply those things. So, you're going to be like Philip. He's probably not going to ask you to go hike a dusty trail in the Middle East. But he might send you to work this week. You might have a neighbor that has a death in the family. You might know something else that happens that opens a door in somebody's heart. And of course, above all, have you put your faith... In Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 is simple and clear. For the wages of sin is death. And earlier, same book, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you received the free gift of eternal life? If you haven't, you're probably sitting next to somebody who would love to tell you how you can. Or Pastor Scott, or Pastor Scott, or me, or Pastor Dirk, or Deacon Bob, Betty, who brought you. We'd love to talk to you about how you can know this wonderful Savior. And let's pray. Father, how, how glorious, how marvelous this gospel Thank you for um, your sovereign hand on Philip and his joyous and instant obedience. Thank you for the faith of this man from ancient Ethiopia and that that was just the beginning of the outpouring of the flood of the era of your gospel of grace going to the Gentiles. Here we sit 21 centuries later, reaping the benefits. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do your work in our hearts for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.